Got some fun news for you, a little announcement here. So we are approaching 50 episodes for the Long Game Podcast, which is incredible. So we're going to give away, we're going to do a giveaway for you. Um, to celebrate, we're giving away lifetime access to our content strategy frameworks course. It's valued at $9.97. So this is the most advanced course out there in terms of content strategy. It's filled with screen shares, videos, tutorials, and extra interviews with experts. And um, we've had dozens and dozens of people go through this, give raving reviews. Uh, The course is basically for anybody who's in charge of marketing at a growing company freelancers who are working on their own blog, anybody who wants to build a smart and cogent content strategy. So you could check the curriculum out. It's on our website at beomniscient.com. Uh, this is pretty easy to enter. So to enter, you basically just leave a review for the Long Game Podcast, uh, whatever platform you're listening to. I think Apple is probably the most appropriate. Spotify, you can give reviews now, uh, but any others. And we're going to select one winner on February 9th. So once you leave a podcast review, it could be negative. Honestly, it could be don't please don't leave a negative one, but give us an honest review and uh, tweet at us. Once you've left that review, it's at be omniscient. That's B E O M N I S C I E N T to let us know. Or you can email us at team at be omniscient.com so we can enter you to win ratings and reviews really help us grow, grow. Um, and we'd be a, <laughs> can't talk we would appreciate your help in celebrating 50 great episodes so if you want a chance to win this content strategy course just leave us a review it helps us and we're going to select one winner so thank you hello this is alex burkett co-founder of omniscient digital a premium content marketing agency and you are listening to the long game podcast in this episode i'm talking to rebecca miller rebecca is currently the director of marketing and communications at splash an event marketing technology platform. In this episode, we talk about how public relations experience can help you create content by learning how to frame a story, how to structure content in a way that helps align product, brand, social, and other initiatives through integrated marketing, and the changing landscape and opportunity nowadays with real-life, virtual, and even hybrid events. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Rebecca Miller. got a strange question to start off potentially but i was looking into your background and it looks like your early career began in public relations yes what was that like and how did that influence your approach to content marketing today oh good question yeah so i did start my career in the agency life um first at a pr agency then in a marketing agency it wasn't my favorite um there's a reason i only stayed in agency life for a few years but um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a good experience, I would say. It's good for the resume. It definitely influences like how I work with agencies today. So I can, you know, have those stronger relationships with agency partners because I've been on their side. Um, but it does heavily influence content, right? And like when I started in PR early in my career, content marketing wasn't, I mean, this is really kind of dating me, but like, it wasn't really a thing at that time. Um, I think the agencies I was working at were just kind of starting to think about content as a strategy. And a lot of what we were doing was just straight media outreach, pitching story angles, writing press releases, things like that. So I think, you know, one of the biggest things I think PR preps content for is just, um, uh, you know, writing sentence structure, technical writing, um, creative writing, just kind of being able to um, tell a story. I think those are the big things that I learned having my initial career be in public relations that really helped kind of set the stage for my career in content. And, you know, moving further into my career, um, demand and social and events and everything else. So I think that's kind of like, for me, what I got the most out of being in PR early in my career is just being able to get kind of those fundamentals down. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So when I was in college, I wanted to go into PR and I was actually in the PR club 
And I, I didn't do, I never got into PR professionally, but my first startup I worked at, we did a lot of like media outreach and mm-hmm. kind of blended the worlds of content and, and PR uh, because we were like heavily link focused and getting links from, you know, actual journalists and actual publications sure. was a huge thing. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like, let, let me know if this resonates with you, but when I was pitching or coming up with strategies to get in those publications, I had to really hone in on the question, like what's in it for them? Like why, why should oh, yeah. they care? <laughs> like Definitely. what do they want to hear? Right. And I don't, I don't know if a lot of like content marketers today, I mean, I'm sure they think about that in terms of the audience, but it's like when you're dealing with a journalist, you're, you're one of, you know, a thousand pitches or something like that. So like really honing mm-hmm. in on that message was crucial. Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's the same thing with content, right? I mean, if you are not resonating with your customers or your prospects or whoever you're trying to reach, like you're again, just one of however many other, you know, SaaS providers or agencies or whatever that are trying to reach you. So yeah, I mean, I think that's another really great lesson learned for sure. So what do you do now? What's, what's a day in the life of you at this point in your career? Yeah. So I talked about agency life um, pretty quickly after that moved into in-house marketing and comms. I've been primarily on um, the SaaS side of things. So did some HR tech for a few years and now I'm at Splash, which is a MarTech company. We do event marketing technology. So uh, right now I'm our director of marketing and communications. And essentially what that means is I lead a team of top of funnel marketers and communications professionals. So we do everything from integrated demand campaigns, um, corp comms, PR, um, gosh, pretty much any, anything that falls under top of funnel would fall under my team. So day-to-day, I mean, there really isn't a day-to-day. It kind of looks different every single day. Um, but right now we're really focused on a lot of those integrated demand campaigns, trying to close the year out really strong to make sure we're setting ourselves up for some good option in January and the rest of Q1. Can you, can you explain more what top of funnel means in the context of splash and maybe like how that fits into the broader funnel of like, you know, what's mid funnel, what's bottom funnel. Cause I, I know that differs company to company. Yeah, yeah, it it probably does. Um, so everything top of funnel for us is really anything that will help us build brand awareness, increase thought leadership, get new leads in, um, that sort of thing. So, you know, if you're looking, you know, tactically speaking, um, you know, this might be our blog posts or webinars that we host, virtual events, in-person events, hopefully soon, which we actually have started doing a few in, in-person events. So that's exciting. Um, but really anything that will bring people into our funnel. Um, and those are the kinds of things we focus on today. Other things could be like social, digital. Um, I already mentioned events. Yeah, we have a lot going on. But that's that how we like def- a lot. <laughs> that's how we that's how we define top of funnel. And then as far as it working with the rest of the funnel, we take in like I mentioned an integrated approach. So we rarely will create one-off pieces of content. Even things that we think might seem like one-off pieces, like our evergreen pieces that um, really get at our core messaging, we use all of that for um, our integrated campaigns. So, um, for example, if we have a product launch, technically that would be speaking, that would be more bottom of funnel, something that our product marketing team would own, but we do it differently at splash. We really kind of look at everything, um, from top of funnel to bottom. So if we have a product launch, for example, with our virtual solution that we launched earlier, this is a virtual events platform. Yes. Yes. Nice. Um, yeah, kind of necessary given today's climate. Um, (laughs) so for example, when we launched our virtual event solution, it wasn't just about launching our virtual event solution. We thought about it from the top of the funnel, thinking about, you know, themes that would resonate with audiences 
that we're trying to reach and the challenges that they're having, which obviously with COVID times, they were pretty obviously um, the challenges were, you know, having leads they need to, they need to attain or sorry, not leads, they, goals they have to attain, you know, often with lead gen and whatnot, um, but without having in-person events to rely on. So essentially when we are launching a product, we don't think about it just as the product launch. We think about it from like the top of funnel theme, what challenges are, is our audience looking at? What are they facing? And then kind of tackling it from the top, getting them in the funnel and then exploring how can our product help support them and get them through these challenges that they're facing. That's awesome. So to get specific and structural, let's say with the example of this virtual platform, I'm guessing there's some strategic objective. It's like, we're going to build this product. Product's like, all right, we're going to launch this on this date. And then product mm-hmm. marketing says, we're going to do a launch post, right? Or is that y'all sure. that do the launch post? Uh, no, we work very collaboratively with our product marketing team. And they focus really more on like that mid to bottom of funnel content. But what do you mean by post? Like a blog post, some sort of announcement or like a press release or or something, you know, something that says, Hey, this product is here. This we've, we've built this product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's just, it's a very collaborative effort. I think what I'm curious about, it's probably a dumb question, but um, like when, when a product, because I think this connection between product, product marketing and content hasn't been fleshed out well, at least in my opinion. You know, I've oh, seen how it works yeah. with HubSpot. I've, I've seen how it works with clients sometimes, but I'm curious, like once that announcement comes that we're going to release this product on April 1st mm-hmm. and, you know, it's, you, you've got like two months, like what, what does your team do then? You know, like, do you, do you say, all right, we need like 20 Twitter posts and we need like one blog post or like, yeah, even like at the most like simple level, like what, what do you do? Oh yeah. Okay. So I mean, if we're talking at the simplest level, yes. So we, if we have say virtual solution launching April 1st, we will literally sit down as an, as an entire marketing organization and have a kickoff meeting where whoever is owning the project from the highest level has already created a narrative. They've already started thinking about the messaging, the goals we want to achieve, so, sorry All to interrupt that. that that's like a yeah. product marketer who's who's got that like that top down ownership of whatever launcher. No, we have an integrated marketing lead on my nice. team who yeah, um she is fantastic and kind of owns all of that from the highest level. Um it really helps us have that one person own it because then you know nothing's slipping through the cracks, everything has that cohesive message. Um, nothing's kind of like getting lost in translation. Um, you know, I think historically product and product marketing teams that I've worked with tend to be more technical. Mm. Um, that's not the case at Splash. I think we have a really healthy balance of technical and creative on, in all of our marketing functions. Um, but yeah, we have the one person who's owning the project. We will literally sit down as a team go through the narrative, go through the messaging, um, go through the content funnel and just essentially have like a working session. And so we will say to your point, literally like we need 20 Twitter posts or we need one LinkedIn post a week, or, um, we're going to have a blog post announcing this and this is who is writing it. And this is who needs to approve it. It's very, I would say, the process that we have at Splash is the most structured process for these kinds of things I've ever worked with. Yeah, it sounds very holistic and very structured yeah. compared to some programs I've seen. That also sounds like there's a lot of cross-functional work going on. There is. So just to maybe back up a little bit, what does your team look like? Like who who is on your team and what's how is that structured? It sounds like you've got a lot under your your purview. Yeah, for sure. So even bigger than that, we have, um, we have creative demand growth product. Yes. We have those four kind of like marketing functions under the overall marketing umbrella. So 
I'm more on the demand side. It's not called demand. We use marketing and comms because it is pretty general and we have a lot of, um, we wear a lot of different hats. So on my team right now, we have um, two people focused on integrated marketing, really owning those larger campaigns that I was talking about from um, the top down. And then we have a communications manager who helps support and own um, corporate communications, PR, social, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then we have a digital marketing manager who helps run all of our paid social, Google ads, and also helps to support our campaign planning. I have a silly question. Mm-hmm. What is saying you have silly questions, but none of these <laughs> are silly questions. I, it's just like, I, I feel like I should know some of this, but like, what's, what's an integrate, what's integrated marketing? Well, for me, integrated marketing literally means like everything that we're doing is integrated and we're not doing one-off projects. It's like so, making sure you tell the same story on all the channels yeah. that you're in. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And does that person execute that person doesn't execute on each channel, right? Like they're they're more so putting together like the Google Doc or the Google spreadsheet that says like here's the LinkedIn post, here's the story, and then like there's somebody who kind of executes on the social and that would maybe fall under the corporate comms or yeah, yeah. I guess like what's the strategy versus execution breakdown in, in a role like that? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. We're such a small team that everyone does strategy, everyone does execution. So Yes, our integrated marketer is in the Google Docs and drafting copy and putting together our projects in Asana and whatnot. But we're also, um, you know, drafting the emails, drafting social copy. And, you know, depending on which swim lane you're in, she might not be the one actually going in and scheduling a social post or putting the email into Marketo or whatever. Um, but we all, everyone on the team, even our VP is, you know, executing on stuff because we are a leaner team than most. What's the, um, you can give me a ballpark, but what's the overall like size of, of the company or marketing team? Like what, how, how lean mm-hmm. are you talking here? So the company overall, I want to say is like 200 or maybe just under. Mm-hmm. And then our team, oh gosh. Uh, maybe like 20. Oh, cool. Fewer than 20, fewer than 20 people on the team. Yeah. That's a fun stage. I feel like you, you really can split between being like a a coach and a player, so to speak. Oh, definitely. You get to roll up your sleeves a lot. Yeah, definitely. And what's interesting too, is that we have, I would, I mean, I think of our team as lean because we are doing a lot. So our bandwidth is kind of stretched a little thinner than usual. Um, but for a 200 person company, 20 or fewer people on your marketing team, I mean, that doesn't seem like a small number, you know, I've worked on marketing teams before where it was like five people for a thousand person company. And that's just crazy. Yeah, but, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that wasn't too fun. Um, but it as lean, but it's not really. I think what also makes it feel a little bit leaner is that we don't have like five communications managers, each of whom manage a different social channel or have their own kind of areas. We have one communications manager who does all of that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it almost seems a little bit leaner because we don't have multiple people in a specific role. Right. It's, it's so, it's so different as you scale. Like when I was at HubSpot, I felt like the challenge was trying to find and identify like opportunity areas because Mm -hmm. like there was always a specialist or a team that owned like very specific areas. Right. So like, I would always bump into like people's domains, like step on toes accidentally, but then at a smaller scale, it's like, Oh wait, shit, I I have to do all of this. Like there's no specialist who's, who's going to write this copy. Like, even though it's not like my job or like my specific domain, like there's just more expansiveness in terms of like what you have to do individually at, at smaller, leaner teams. Well, it's cool too, though, because you get so much experience, right? I mean, my first job, 
out of grad school was at a PR agency, like I said, where I was literally only pitching media all day long, nine to five. So just write, writing emails all day? Not even. I was expected to be on the phone all oh, day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would actually, funny story. And I don't know if I should say this because I don't want to like, I'm not bad mouthing anybody, but I, it was like back, I don't know, 2008 or something. And, you know, you would call someone like actually on the phone. Like I had a phone with a cord on my desk in my cubicle and, you know, you would be able to see different lines on the phone to see like whose line was lit up. And if my phone, if my, if my light wasn't lit up, I would get, I would get phone calls like from across the office saying like, I just wanted to follow up on X, Y, and Z. And like, why are you not pitching? Oof. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. My, and you wonder why I didn't like agency life. Right. Stressful. Um, Yeah. But my point is, is that I was only doing media pitching. I didn't really get um, a lot of chances to do other things. I mean, maybe write a press release here and there. And like, that was great because I loved writing and I still love writing. I'm still happy to write email copy whenever I get a chance. Um, But that's a reason why I moved into the next agency that I did, because when you are a leaner team, you get chances to do different things that you might not have been able to do if you were part of like a bigger true enterprise marketing team. Um, And I think that's the other cool thing about being part of a leaner team is you're not stuck just doing one thing nine to five every single day. Yeah, I to- I totally whatever. agree. It depends what you want to do and what your goals and inclinations are. Yeah. Because like I feel like I I spent years of my career just being like deeply insecure that I was a generalist. You know, like I was always oh, like, oh, yeah. I don't have any skills. But like I, being I a generalist is totally a skill set, right? Like it, it, it depends what is. stage. Yeah. But yeah, now definitely. I'm kind of accept it. <laughs> like I'm, I'm much better in those situations where I can apply myself across like multiple problems and domains. Whereas yeah. I, I do think some people probably cater towards like, I'm, I'm an SEO, like I'm a technical SEO sure. specialist and yeah. I don't want to write landing page copy or something like yeah, that. Definitely. Wait. So I just realized, I mean, you just said you're a generalist, but like, what is your area of specialty? Like if you <laughs> so- could shoot, if you chose, if you could say like, I like for me, I've always said, you know, back in the day when one of the interview questions was like, what's your greatest strength, which I don't know if a lot of people ask that anymore, but I would always say writing. Right. Yeah. And you know, that's like, if I had to pick one thing, like that would be like my, I don't know, my, my super strength. You know what I mean? I do. Do do you know the framework, the T-shaped marketer? Yeah. So it's, it's, it almost feels like a cop-out, but I, I really resonated with that. So I kind of identified that I have core foundational skills that aren't domain specific. So mm-hmm. I think I'm really good at data and decision-making with data. And then I'm really good at writing and communication mm-hmm. and then sort of relationship building. So those are like cores and like you could, oh, like yeah. you could use those skills to be like a Facebook ads marketer. Or you could use those to be like a landing page copywriter. You know, there's multiple ways that you could do those, but Definitely. then the domains that I got good at, and this is, I'm at like a split right now because I kind of still live both of these lives, but I got really good at content marketing and conversion rate optimization. But I okay. think the content one, that's where I'm trying to go deeper at yeah. this point. Yeah. But I don't know, cool. maybe there is something to, to be said for just like having those foundational skills, because like I said, like if you're good at data and writing, you could apply those to so many different areas. Absolutely. And maybe never be top 1%, but like maybe, you know, you at least know enough to know what's good and what's bad and how to hire in those areas. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask more about Splash. Um, yeah. So you said it's an event marketing or an event um, tech platform. Yeah. Uh, what, what does that mean specifically? Uh, you, you mentioned there's a virtual component, but it sounds like before last year, there wasn't as much of that. So what, is, right. what does Splash do? Like, how do you describe the product? Splash is an event marketing technology that helps marketing teams specifically, um, event organizers, field marketers, Um, Anyone who is planning an event, market, manage, and measure their events. So, um, you know, primarily when event marketers or field marketers start an event, they are creating the event landing page, 
They have emails they need to create. They have social share cards they need to create. And Splash helps them do all of that. But in a self-serve, autonomous way. So Mm -hmm. it's not just event marketers or field marketers today that are creating events. We've actually found through some surveys we've done that more people in organizations outside of marketing teams are creating events more than ever post-COVID, not post-COVID, but like during COVID. And so what Splash does is it helps those teams create events in um, more of a self-sufficient way so that they're not having to necessarily rely on people who are experts in the platform to create those events for them. So we are still targeting a lot to event marketers and field marketers. That is still our target audience. It's our bread and butter. Um, But the great thing about Splash is that, um, you know, marketing can put marketing approved templates in Splash. And then like your sales team, for example, um, could run a sales dinner just Mm. by taking those templates. It has everything from your brand already in there. So you don't have to worry about people creating off-brand events. Um, You know how people love those rogue designs. Um, And then from a data perspective, um, everything is connected as well. So, you know, I had, I was talking to one customer one time doing a case study and she was saying something like, you know, we used to measure our events based on the feeling, right? Like, did you feel like the event was successful? Did people have fun? Were they happy there? And like, that's not a true metric that people should be measuring their events on. Um, So another cool thing that Splash does is integrates with other existing um, technologies that a company might have, things like Salesforce, Marketo, other CRM and map platforms um, to make sure that all the data is connected. And one thing that I think is really important is kind of like this transition from in-person events to virtual, to hybrid, to back to in-person eventually. And being wait, able wait, to wait, keep... wait, what, what is a hybrid event? That's oh where you gosh. do like an in-person thing and also like stream it or how, do, what is that? Yeah, essentially. Interesting. Um, and you're seeing that as a trend? Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing with hybrid today is that people don't really know what to make of it. Um, Some people don't even know how to do it. Um, I think the ones who have tried it have been really successful and like testing things and getting out there and um, trying hybrid events, but it's confusing and it can be difficult, especially, um, you know, if you don't have the virtual side completely nailed I mean, you have to have that down pat to have a successful hybrid event. You know, you don't want the virtual attendees kind of feeling like they don't matter. Yeah, I I think that's like the biggest challenge, not the biggest, but one of the biggest challenges that um, we've been seeing. But yeah, I think it's definitely a trend. It's definitely going to be part of the events landscape for 2022. But it's just, it's hard. It's not something that people have attempted before now, you know, or if they have, they didn't know it was hybrid event, right? I mean, back in, I don't know, the early 2010s, I think, I think Salesforce may have started like live streaming parts of their Dreamforce Mm -hmm. conference. HubSpot used to do that too, within Bound for a couple of years that I was there. And I mean, technically that's a hybrid event, but no one called it then, called it that then. You know, right. and but the experience now, was pretty different too. Or I don't know with Salesforce, but with HubSpot, it was kind of like watching a YouTube video if you were on the virtual component. Okay. And like the in-person, like there's booths and games, and it wasn't I think an they've experience. done a lot more now. Like they've you know yeah. used like a virtual events platform, like a like a you know, like literally you're you, you know you have like you avatars look like you're and in stuff. A trade show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think back then it was it was very different. Like you said, I don't think they would have called it hybrid. I think it was like. Hey, how can we get additional distribution or something For like sure. that? Sure. Yeah, because it wasn't an experience then, but now people are realizing if they're going to have, you know, even even when COVID first started, the virtual events were like just webinars, right? But right. then COVID kept happening, kept happening and wasn't going away. 
And event marketers were like, this is fine, but what can we do better? And like, you have to make it an experience, not just talking at people. So I think that's kind of, you know, what helped marketers realize that if you're going to do a hybrid experience, it can't just be, you know, live streaming an event to your virtual audience. Like they need to have an experience too, because any virtual event these days, you have to have it be an experience. But yeah, that's interesting. So we do a virtual event series and I think it's interesting to the extent that we get good speakers and it's, we tell them like no fluff, like just go straight to the point. Like this is a screen share, right? We want to teach people specifically how to do things. And I think that's an interesting format for like online stuff, but to a certain extent, it's still kind of a webinar. So I'm, I'm really interested in breaking out and doing more of these in-person events, but I'm curious, have you, what have you learned um, working at Splash about, it could be virtual or it could be just events in general. Like what, how do you make a good, how do you make a good experience for an event like that? Let's, let's say B2B or, you know, pretty typical, mm-hmm. like here, here's some expert speakers. Like what's, what's the difference between a good and a subpar event? Engagement is one thing, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think one thing we all learned early in COVID is that a webinar is a webinar is a webinar, right? Unless you, I mean, it doesn't have to be though. If you can throw in engagement tools, then it can be more of an experience, even if at the end of the day, it is technically a webinar. So, you know, things that we started doing to help us in that area was introducing polling. And I know that's like, you know, it's nothing, it's nothing groundbreaking, but really making an effort to do that consistently at events, but like also using that data that you get from polls in follow-up communications and other content. Um, that's something that we found really useful. Um, you know, keeping chat open. I've been at virtual events or webinars before where they close chat. And I feel like that just makes for a really lackluster virtual event. Um, you know, uh, what else? Um, good speakers for sure. Engaging Mm -hmm. speakers. Um, one thing that we've done at some of our virtual events is actually having like MCs or hosts, people who, Yeah, people who may not necessarily be speaking to the actual content, but can help people stay engaged and kind of amp up the audience and get that going. Um, And then we have hosted actually a couple of in-person and hybrid events over the last um, few weeks or a couple months. And one thing that we've done with those is have someone dedicated to the virtual experience. So even if they're on site or online, it doesn't matter, but having them available as that person who can keep the virtual audience engaged, keep questions coming, start conversations, that sort of thing. It can really help make that experience be better than, um, you know, your traditional webinar or live stream of a regular in-person event, you know? Yeah, for sure. How so you're starting to do in-person stuff again. How has yeah. the demand been for that stuff? Is it, are people just stoked to get back out and connect in real life or what's the Yeah. Yeah, people are stoked to get back to in-person events. I will say it kind of what I've seen anyway is it kind of depends on location. Um yeah. some Like Florida's areas- just like We've been doing this for the whole time. <laughs> okay. Well, same in Arizona. I feel like COVID never even happened here. Right. Um, but obviously that's not the case. And I shouldn't say that, but um, right, right, right. um, but essentially that's what it feels like here because nothing has ever closed. Totally. Um, same here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, in Texas for sure. Um, so yeah, it just kind of it, it depends on location, I think, is one thing that we've seen. But in general, I would say people are just super eager to get back. I know we were super eager to start hosting in-person events. And I think one of the things is that we're probably gonna see is a lot of smaller events. Mm-hmm. I don't know how soon I personally am gonna be running back to like an exhibition hall, but um, you know, smaller wraparound events, 
I think, well, first of all, they have been proven to show better ROI for a lot of our customers, at least. So I think those will definitely um, be a bigger trend moving into 2022, not just for the ROI, but also for the safety factor. You know, attendees want to know that they're going to be safe. They want to feel like they're going to be safe. Um, so yeah, I think in general, people are just really excited to get back. Um, it's just, I don't know if everyone is ready to get back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's where the hybrid stuff comes in, but you hit on an interesting point that I've, I noticed, but I've never articulated. It's almost like there's a gulf now where the biggest events are probably still going to exist like Saster, Dreamforce, inbound, and they're going to do like all the high cost things to make everyone feel safe and, you know, like vaccine checks and, and, um, yeah, just like all of the things around that. But then like, I feel like this mid-level of event, like 500 people, a thousand people, it's very expensive to put up all the precautions there. And also like their margins were so small before in events like that, that I, Mm -hmm. I I don't want to make a prediction, but I I could see them being less and less common. Right. And I do yeah. feel like even, so I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and I spoke for the first time in, you know, a couple of years, like before the pandemic and it was a mm-hmm. much smaller one. Um, but it was a test from, from my old boss at CXL. He threw uh, CXL live and that used to be 400, 500 people. And he booked out the whole hotel and yeah. like, it was this high cost thing where he had to sell all the seats. Otherwise it was like a huge <laughs> loss. Yeah. Um, and he's like, I can't make that risk anymore. Like, I don't know what Definitely. the news is going to bring. I don't know if there's going to be a new variant. There always is. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. that level of risk is going to push those types of events to become smaller. And then there's still going to be like this top tier of like the, the biggest, you know, the huge events. And I mean, think about all that risk. Can you imagine what hotel contracts are going to be looking like? Right. Or like venue, not even just hotel, like venue contracts. I mean, there's not just risk to the event organizer, but risk to all these venues too. Yeah. It's, so, it's crazy. Yeah. And like, to your point, it, it is interesting too, because uh, Pep was also talking about these smaller events do facilitate more interaction, discussion connections, because sometimes you get lost in this, this mid-level crowd of like too many people. So I, I do see the effectiveness of those too. I want to yeah, do these you, events. I know. <laughs> Sounds so fun. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, with the smaller events, for sure, less risk, all of that, but they are more targeted. You can reach the right people. I mean, I think I mentioned briefly um, a couple of surveys we did recently. And one of the things that came up was that people moving into 2022 are going to be more excited about um, or more m- more focused on, I should say, Um, getting the right people in the room, Mm -hmm. not the most people in the room. And so, I mean, I feel like, again, not groundbreaking, but an interesting thing to think about as, you know, people are going to be looking at smaller, more intimate events going into next year um, to get that in-person experience, but also keep things more targeted, more ROI driven um, and just like safer in general. Yeah. It sounds like it also converges with, um, this increasingly popular strategy of like more targeted ABM campaigns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, like for us, I was thinking, um, well, I have many ideas, so let me know if I can run these by you. Okay. <laughs> so sure. we have this online thing. It's like the office hours where there's three speakers. I, I think that could easily be translated into an in-person event, like get 50 people partner with an incubator or something like that. Yeah. I think that's an obvious one. There's also like doing a live podcast in front of a crowd, a pretty small crowd. I think that'd be interesting. But one idea I have is like we use HubSpot CRM and we have a handful of clients, a handful of prospects, and then this much broader group of target accounts that we would like to work with. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what if we just did like we could travel around and, you know, do made like I live in Austin, we could go to Miami, we could go to New York, Chicago and have dinners with 20 people, some clients, some prospects and some target accounts, and yes. then get this like mixed, mixed discussion going and get like a speaker or something like that. And then like we could really accurately, especially if we used a, a, a tool like Splash, we could accurately see if this is an ABM strategy worth doing because we can put them through HubSpot and see like, all right, yep. does does this increase our sales rate for these target accounts? It seems like that would be like kind of the ultimate use case with, with something I like mean, this. Yeah, that is definitely a great use case. 
Um, I, what I love about that is bringing customers and prospects in the same room, mm-hmm. you know, because then you kind of, um, you have that firsthand testimonial too, in there to be able to say like, you know, we've had a great experience with this company. Yeah, hopefully they and, say that. Hopefully yeah, they're not well, like, we, we absolutely hate working with them. Well, you don't invite <laughs> Backfire. Them <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Only invite the happy clients. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's what I love about that is kind of having that mixed bag of people. And then you get a variety of opinions and, um, you know, like I said, good testimonials. And um, yeah, I mean, if you're able to um, get that integration between like an event marketing platform and HubSpot in your example, or in your case, then, you know, you have all that connected data and, you know, follow-ups can be fast and efficient. And, um, you know, you can actually see like directly if that event or what locations of that event are driving the most ROI do it again next year. Yeah. I think I'm going to do this. This is awesome. Uh, well, if you come to Arizona, let me know. Oh, we'll, we'll do an Arizona. I, I need to get to yeah, Arizona yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you went through the process, when COVID hit and you didn't have the virtual product, what were, what were you thinking on the marketing side? <laughs> I'm sure your plans were just like, oh shit, you know, like, what do we do now? Yes. And no, I think there was an oh shit moment, but also we moved really fast to this virtual solution. So it, it, and gosh, I mean, it probably wasn't like this, but thinking back, it almost felt like one day COVID hit. And then the next day we were like, okay, here's our plan for the virtual solution. And I know it wasn't that fast, but thinking back, it actually felt like that's how fast we moved. And I mean, all of our, at that point, all of our eggs were in this virtual solution basket, right? Because this was the only option um, for people who were trying to reach. So, um, and for our customers. So, um, yeah, I think I think like I said, there was kind of that oh shit moment, but it didn't last long. You know, mm-hmm. I think we we had that moment, and then we thought, okay, if we're going to create this virtual solution, how are we going to message it, um, and how are we going to shift the value prop of Splash? And it honestly, it feels like it was an overnight thing. It's cool. It sounds like it was a super agile effort and like the operations there are agile. Do you, how far do you plan um, your content? Like how how far out are you planning blog posts? It it doesn't sound like it's like a year in advance or something like that, but. No, I I mean, in in an ideal world, you know, you would have an annual calendar of your programming, but I think we've all learned over the last couple of years that that's so you know, anything can happen and yeah. that's just not, it's just not going to work for everybody depending on what industry you're in. So, um, right now, like we have a general idea of what we're going to do for all of 2022. So we have an annual calendar. Do we have themes outlined for every single campaign we're going to run? No. Um, for our more core content, we, we do have an idea of what we're going to do throughout the year. Um, but you know, a lot of that is driven by what are we going to release in the product and how can we theme that up to a top of funnel content? Um, and then some of it is unknown. Some of it has to be around what's happening in the industry and what do we need to talk about and what do we have to help our customers and our community with? And so those are the sorts of things that we might plan just like a quarter out Mm. um, and kind of like take things as they come. And I think, um, you know, we've definitely learned to be a lot more flexible and there is, I love structure and process more than almost anybody else, but there's definitely something to be said about keeping things flexible, um, especially with how things are today. So yeah, I would say you know, for some of those more time sensitive topics, we're looking a quarter, maybe two quarters out. And do you, does SEO factor into the content strategy or how do you work with SEO? Or I don't, I don't even know if organic is a goal, but can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, we do consider SEO organic is 
you know, part of our strategy. It's not the whole strategy. I think, you know, there's definitely work that we need to do on the SEO front. And I think almost every marketing team would say that. Um, but yeah, I would say in general, like it does play a part in our strategy. Um, could we get better at it? Yes. And, um, because yeah. that's the stuff that's a little harder to, to yeah. pivot quickly on. Right. Cause you, you kind of have yeah. to build this like foundation and like, all right, where are we, where do we want to be in two years? Cause that means like, oh, we have to start writing this keyword today type of thing, you know, versus I know, like, it's like if it's PR type content or like thought leadership stuff, it's like, oh, we can pivot on a dime sometimes. Yeah, it is harder because it takes a long time to build. Right. So, um, I would say like in general, we try to focus that with our digital marketing. So, um, we do pretty strong with, um, our keyword, our brand keyword, um, campaigns and whatnot in our digital marketing efforts. Um, but like from an organic perspective, it's definitely something that, um, is a little more challenging, I think for the reason that you said, um, but also like SEO is just a beast, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's so much that goes into it. I feel like you need someone dedicated to it. And when you are a leaner team, you don't always have one person dedicated to it. So, you know, a lot of times, at least at the companies I've worked for, um, it is a lot of piecemeal, just, you know, chipping away at SEO. And is that the best strategy? Probably not, but you kind of do what you need to do, you know? Totally. Yeah. So it's like, you've got your content plan and like, maybe this piece you could, you could like append this keyword and like try to go over that, but it's, it's not like you have some list of like a thousand keywords prioritized by like intent and difficulty and like, you know, map it out I mean, in this like crazy way. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we do have a list. Um, and you know, I would say we do prioritize our keywords. Um, we also do make sure to be intentional about choosing keywords when we're creating content. So, you know, a simple blog post or a landing page or whatever, um, you know, we do actually write out in our copy doc, like here is the keyword or multiple keywords that we're trying to go after with this piece of content. Um, you know, but like I said, it's kind of chipping away at it and, um, you know, it's great to have, to be intentional about it. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is that SEO isn't the end all be all from, in my opinion. And I think, I don't know, there's probably a lot of people out there who disagree with me, but whatever. Yeah. I think, I mean, I could get on so many different paths with this, but yeah, it depends on the company and, I also think that it's simply less exciting to only look at SEO. Like I, I just think like out of a pure interest point of view, it's like yeah. when you when you relegate everything to keywords, you you do destroy a little bit of the um yeah, the brand voice and the passion and the thought leadership stuff. Exactly. Which in my opinion is a tad more important. Um otherwise it, you know, if if you're not being interesting, if you're only focused on the keywords, um then you're going to lose the interest of your readers. So um, for me, that's definitely number one. SEO follows closely. But I also read something just the other day about how Google was going to prioritize, not prioritize, but consider bold text now in search. And I'm just like thinking, oh my gosh, what are all the crazy blog posts I'm going to see that are just like completely bolded from start to finish? You know what I mean? For sure. For sure. And I'm sure they, I'm sure I didn't read the whole thing, but I'm sure, which is probably says something about my thoughts on SEO, but um, it's probably such I'm a sure minute consideration of theirs too, but like some, some people are going to take is. that and be like, Oh, I've got to bold everything. Absolutely. <laughs> they are. And I'm sure they have some sort of algorithm on the back end that, you know, I don't know, penalizes you for using too much bold or whatever, who knows. Um, but yeah, people are going to take that seriously. No doubt about it. Yeah. That's funny. I'm not, I'm not into it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I think if you lead with like the voice of customer and the customer pain points, uh, SEO can fall in place. But if you do the opposite, uh, it's not necessarily true. If you lead with SEO, you know you can hit those customer pain points, but it's, it doesn't yeah. necessarily logically follow. Yeah. Um, so you have an interesting role because you have some of this corporate comms and like um, you know brand voice as well as the content and campaigns. Mm-hmm. So I don't have as much. Um, skill or experience in building, I guess, like style guides, brand voice, and thinking through those things. How do you, how do you choose (laughs) how the brand voice sounds? Like, how do you, how do you build and refine a brand voice and editorial style? Great question. This is actually one of the first things I did when I started at Splash in 2019 was create guidelines as far as the brand voice, tone, style, all that. Um, And I think for me, what it really came down to is looking at what, what was our voice previously, even though it was never defined previously, um, did that resonate, um, was our content working essentially. Um, but then also bringing in, um, our community and really listening to them reading, um, what they're writing in our community channels and kind of like melding those two together to build something that we think would work. Right. I mean, you're never going to know until you try it. So there's definitely been iterations of our brand voice and those, um, related guidelines, but yeah, I mean, it, it really, I mean, it depends, right? Like, I don't know. It's just such a hard question to answer because it's like, yeah, it's so nuanced context. dependent. Well, like for yeah. example, our agency, like I feel like a lot of the times brand voices get built accidentally based on how the founder sounds or like the first writer. And yeah. like, we're all writers and founders. And I think that I have a pretty different voice than the other founders. And like, we, we all have very distinct voices. Um, so I don't know. We've never consciously thought through our brand voice that I know of. Maybe oh, really? I should look into that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think it's just like a heterogeneous kind of thing. It's like we each kind of like whoever writes the email, you just write in your voice. And I guess yeah. we haven't really thought through it. Like, I feel like mine is very like off the cuff and brash. And David's is a little more like put together and organized and concise. And like, we, we've just got different approaches. And that I asked the question selfishly. I'm like, you know, should we <laughs> develop like a cohesive brand? voice for ourselves or is it enough to just say like hey this is the founder this is alex speaking you know this is how i sound yeah so a couple of thoughts one i am a i'm a big proponent of having a brand voice like actual guidelines like defined but at the same time i feel like every individual obviously has a right to their own brand voice too. Right. I mean, like you're not going to sit here and talk to me on this podcast in your company's brand voice. Like you are going to talk to me. (laughs) Yeah. Like you're going to talk to me like you and that's, that's part of it. But you know, when you're talking about like official marketing assets or communications going out from the company, yes. Like for me, I believe that having a brand voice and that those guidelines actually defined is super important. Um, I think for a few reasons, but the biggest is that when you're working on a team of 20 or so marketers or more 20 in my case, um, you know, you're not the only person creating marketing materials and comms for the company. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things with having that defined is, everything can be more consistent. People can recognize your brand voice and they're not seeing or hearing something different with every piece of content or comms that they're reading, you know? Yeah. I think, tell me if I'm off base here, but the way I look at that is like a, like the Atlantic or the New Yorker where Mm -hmm. there's writers with somewhat distinct voices, but like, you know, at the end of the day, like this is a New Yorker article. This is the structure it's going to follow. It's going to be 10,000 words about like, you know, some very minute thing. And like, this is the Atlantic, (laughs) this is how the Atlantic writes, but like, there's still authors on those sites where they, it's not like they're fully like immersed in this 
like amorphous, like the Atlantic, right? It's not like a staff byline. It's like, there's still a byline, but they fall under the umbrella of that general style. Yeah, exactly. I look at it the same way. If we're looking at the splash blog, it's the same thing. Like we have multiple writers for the blog. Everyone writes how they speak. And that's something that I really believe in. Um, But you can tell with both design and message that it's a splash blog post. And I think that's the ultimate goal of having a brand voice and guidelines to support it is really just making sure that you sound, we sound like splash, you know, or, you know, any company sounds like their company, but like everyone can have their own voice, obviously. Do you keep a writing habit outside of professional work? No, not not these days. Like journaling, I, or uh, blogging, or no. Anything like that? I mean, I used to want. I mean, I used to do some of that. I it, I love writing, and I would love to do something like that. Like personally speaking, I recently had a baby, so you know, there's just no time. Not a lot of time in the day. No. Yeah. I feel like also when you do it all day, it's like, like how much yeah. extra energy do you have to fire off a personal blog post at the end of the night or something? Like I that? know. I always had like these extreme visions of, you know, or not visions, I guess, but like hopes of, you know, creating an amazing personal blog that was like, you know, travel and food and like, you know, all those like quintessential like lifestyle bloggers, but you know, I mean, how many people really make it with that kind of thing? And who has time if it's not your full-time gig, right? It would be fun. I mean, that, I that's what you don't. want to do after after the fuck you money. After, you know, if you ever get a, like a good IPO, it's like then then yeah. it's like, oh, I want to be a food blogger or something. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I have yeah. the same dreams. I'm like, oh, it'd be sick to just like like write an album, like a music album. But I'm like, I can't, oh, yeah. can't do that now. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's just, I just don't, I mean... I see all these things like on Instagram and whatever about like having a side hustle and that's, Hey, that's great. If you have time for a side hustle, that's not what I want to do with my free time. So yeah, I think it's good early career. Like I did a lot of that early career and it helped me explore like what I was interested in and yeah, like I had a lot more time and energy then, but I'm I'm the same. I'm like, I kind of want to do just one thing really well and then spend time with people I like afterwards or exactly go kayaking or something like that yeah exactly go hiking yeah (laughs) for sure um do you want to finish up with a couple maybe like I call them rapid fire they're not necessarily rapid fire but non-content related stuff sure let's do it um who do you admire professionally and why oh great question um yeah these are definitely not rapid fire because I need to think about these Totally uh, well, fine. the first the, the first person who comes to mind is my manager. Um, I think, gosh, I've been managing people since like 2012 or 2013. And I feel like up until I started working at Slash, I sucked as a manager. Like, I can't tell you how much I've learned from her just in the last you know, two, two and a half years. It's absolutely insane. Um, like I've completely changed my entire approach to being a people leader since working at Splash because of her. It's it's a weird skill set because when you see somebody who's really good at it versus somebody who's really bad at it, the difference is so stark yet kind of unobvious uh, and on like mm-hmm. what specific elements go into it. Um yeah. yeah, I don't know. That's that's been a new path for me the last couple of years as well. And I'm I'm trying to like piece together like what are the best practices. And I've kind of experienced both. And um God, what a what a difference it makes, like having a it, really good manager. I mean, it truly is like the biggest difference in the world. For sure. Yeah. Um, if you could create your own category in Jeopardy, what would it be? And would you get every question right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Um Okay. I don't, I don't know. What would yours be? I need some inspiration. No one's ever turned this question around on me. So I haven't thought about yeah, it. Yeah. Ever. How do you like it? <laughs> um, I think I would do pretty well with like nineties punk rock trivia. Um, I think I know most things about the history of punk rock, especially the skate punk phase in the nineties. 
Like I could probably okay. do like just literally Blink One Eighty Two trivia, actually. Okay. Um, yeah, there's probably some other nerdy stuff, but <laughs> that's what came to mind immediately. No, it's fine. Um, like Tony Hawk characters. Oh my gosh, I used to love Tony Hawk. <laughs> um, back in the day, uh, when he was like super popular. Um, okay, so I would do really well with like sitcom trivia, or, um. I don't know. Like, this is really sad to say, but like Bravo TV shows. Oh yeah. <laughs> Someone else actually said um, like trashy uh, reality TV. Is yeah. This, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that, thank you. That's more what I'm trying to get at. Like <laughs> I love a good sitcom, but trashy reality is sort of my guilty pleasure and I'm never going to apologize for it. Do you have a favorite? Well, it just kind of depends on like season because, you know, they rotate so quickly, but anything in the bachelor franchise is a fan favorite of mine. Um, I'm also a big fan of below deck and Mm -hmm. the housewives franchise. Although there are a few, I can't, I just can't get into. (laughs) So Um, we'll stop, we'll stop there. I don't need to get into a whole Bravo conversation. (laughs) Uh, Which, which talent would you most like to have? Ooh, I would like to be able to speak more languages fluently than English, I think would be, I don't know if that's a talent, but that's something that, yeah, that's something that I would like to be able to do. Do you have a language you would gravitate towards? I think French. French would be awesome. That's on my list too. It sounds so beautiful. It does. And, you know, I've been to... France and some French speaking countries. Um, and like, I can read a menu. Like if you put a French menu in front of me, I can say, Oh, you know, that's a piece of fish with whatever. Um, but you know, I can only say a few phrases. I think being able to speak that fluently would just be amazing. Yeah. I I have the worst accent in French ever. Um, I tried to (laughs) learn a little bit and I, I still have a couple sentences. I won't even do it now because it's so embarrassing, but I went to Paris solo traveling and I would kind of memorize, like, uh, you know, could I get a table for one? And uh, immediately, <laughs> yeah. like, I remember this specifically because it was quite embarrassing. He just, like, looked at me like I was an idiot and just started speaking to me in English. Like, it was didn't even, like, assume that I could speak anything more than that sentence. And I was like, ah, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, at least at. you tried. That's That's the important part, right? That you tried to speak their language and their country. Yeah, for sure. Although in yeah. Paris, it could go either way. It's like if you don't try, they're angry. And if you do try, they can get angry, too. So it's true. <laughs> it's been a while since I've been there, so I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Um, if you well, no. Do you consider yourself more scientific or artistic? Mm. Um, I would say scientific just because I think of myself more like analytical than creative. I, yeah, I like brainstorming a lot with other people because sometimes I feel like my creative juices just don't flow that well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's a career choice that you considered, but did not pursue? I always wanted to be a chef. Hmm. Like I wanted to go to culinary school, but I didn't pursue it for many reasons. Um, And today, the biggest reason I'm glad I didn't is because I have no interest in working on Friday and Saturday nights. Yeah, the lifestyle, I think, is pretty brutal. I read Kitchen Confidential, one of my favorite books, and it's like, (sighs) wow. Yes, I love that book as well. Make it out in insane shape in that industry. Yep. But um, do you watch like cooking shows? Are you into that kind of genre, food shows? Yeah. Yeah, I love food shows. I love cooking. I love baking. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I've been watching food shows since I was like eight years old. Like I was a weird oh, yeah? kid. Yeah. What's your favorite? Um, well, I'm, I watch Masterclass now, you know, like the subscription okay. course platform. Yeah. And I'm watching all of Thomas Keller's stuff. Like he's oh, revolutionized cool. the way I cook salmon and asparagus and like all these basic things that I cook quite a oh. bit. So it's been I awesome. need to learn more about. Yeah, I need to learn more about that. Well, that's the thing. It's like you can learn all these like advanced complex recipes that you might make like once a year or something like if you're entertaining or if you're trying to like. Yeah, show but off. it's impressive shit, right? It's cool. But like the, the cooler thing is to just make the basic shit 
really well you know that's true yeah definitely it's it's such a lifestyle upgrade so i've been really into that but I, yeah, I guess like I used to watch a lot of the Travel Channel stuff with like Bourdain and um, yeah Andrew Zimmern and 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 those yeah. kind of shows. Okay, okay. Well, two things. My favorite is Chopped, and I will actually like the cooking competition show. That's a good one. And I will actually like pause the TV after they give the ingredients and think like really fast, what would I make if I were in your position? And of Love course, that. like anything I make would never even hold a candle to what these people make. But um what I was going to say about the travel channel shows. Did you ever watch that show? Um, Man versus food. Of course. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They had reruns on the other day and I got caught in a marathon and like, I love that show. That was I great. Too. I used to like go to a lot of those restaurants on there too. Like a Same. Yeah. bunch from Chicago. There was like Al's Italian beef. Like I was really into that because that was on the sandwich challenge. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. Another good one to watch is taco chronicles on Netflix. There's actually a oh. restaurant here in Austin that's featured. So I've never recommend. even heard of it. Okay. I'll put that on my list. <laughs> um, what blogs, podcasts, influencers, what kind of content are you following nowadays? So to be honest, I'm not following a ton of like marketing content these days, um, at least as far as podcasts go. So I'm still really big into the HubSpot blog. I would say I still gravitate there for, you know, just if I need like some content inspiration or whatnot. Um, from a podcast standpoint, I'm obviously going to have to start listening to this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the, um, you know, some of the ones that I'm listening to are, you know, obviously less marketing focused and just more to kind of like get me through my morning routine. Um, things like, I mean, a lot of them are like trashy reality show based. We don't need to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't want to, that's fine. Um, I actually, I don't, I feel like I don't listen to too much business stuff on podcasts either, like maybe one or two, but, um, I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts. Like I want to like be entertained, you know? Oh, okay. I'm not big into comedy. Like I've never really been into stand up comedians or anything, but I don't know. I like listening to like recaps of shows or like one thing that I'm really into right now is the office ladies podcast. It's um, Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey talking about their time on the office and they like recap every episode and then give behind the scenes details and whatever. Um, But yeah, from a business perspective, I just, I kind of feel like if I have time during the day, I'll hop on, you know, a couple of blogs or go on Twitter and see what people are talking about. Um, read LinkedIn articles um, from some people in the industry. But I mean, generally, I really ever since having a kid, I really try to leave business stuff at my desk when I leave it. And, you know, I just I to be totally frank, just don't want to spend my evenings doing that anymore. Totally. I mean, that makes total sense to me. There's a lot of noise out there anyway. A lot of time to waste. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, Yeah. um, Easy finale. Where can people find you online? LinkedIn. Um, It's pretty much the only platform I'm on. So gosh, there's probably like a million Rebecca Millers out there, but I'm the only one who works at Splash. So you can find me there. (laughs) Um, I am on Twitter, but I'm not active. Um, and yeah, I kind of swore off a lot of the social platforms, so cool. Best to find me on LinkedIn. Yes, it is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. This is super fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you for having me. 